you know, we live in Canada and we're, we're a country of kindness and kind of where a lot of us are naive. A lot of Canadians felt like the race issue wasn't an issue that we faced at home. The timing of that story, what happened to us on that walk home with the George Floyd murder, I just felt like I needed to share and, and make people aware here at home. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Black Tea. My name is Melena Williams. And I'm Dalton Higgins. And we're really excited today because we're going to be speaking to content creator Sasha Exeter. And the interesting thing is Sasha Exeter is a rare breed because she's, you know, a black female influencer who's doing some big things. Yeah. Sasha Exeter is a former elite athlete turned global brand marketer turned entrepreneur. She is the founder of So Sasha, a personal brand and website where she shares a refreshing approach to fitness, lifestyle and motherhood to followers all over the world. However, it's Sasha's inspiring story of how she took a chance on creating her own brand, plus how she overcame two chronic illnesses through diet and exercise that has really resonated with people. The Toronto native has found much success in the industry in recent years through her partnerships with an impressive list of global brands such as Nike, Apple, General Motors, Tetley, Clinique, Mercedes and more, with also being the face of national campaigns for Activia and Joe Fresh for the past three years. For By sharing her very personal journey, she inspires so many daily to live a healthy and authentic life. So thank you so much for joining us, Sasha. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. We're so excited to talk to you. And I just wanted for you to kind of elaborate on some of the things I mentioned, because I think it's really interesting on how you built your career and um, just sort of, you know, what inspired you to work with brands. My career or my journey to where I am today wasn't um, a very straight path and nor was it very easy. So I actually was in the corporate world for many years and I worked for some pretty big companies like Imperial Tobacco, Whirlpool, LG Electronics, um, and had a very successful um, corporate career at a very young age. However, I was diagnosed with a rare kidney disease while I was still in college. And just as my corporate career was picking up, I had a major relapse with my health and was under the understanding that I would only be taking a two-week break from work um, and then would be resuming my career. And what was a two-week break ended up being almost two years off of work and in and out of hospital and on bed rest. So unlike a lot of content creators and quote-unquote influencers today, I didn't start my my website, and I didn't start building my brand as a business. It really actually started as a passion project. And it was um, just something that I had that I felt that it was very cathartic for me while I was off work. It was an outlet for a creative outlet, so to speak, for mm-hmm. me, me to write about things that I enjoyed. Do you think that like, because I know that you were doing marketing with your corporate career before, So how does it feel to be on the other side of it? Do you think that gives you an advantage? I think my corporate background in creating brands and marketing brands has been a huge asset to what I do today. It's actually been critical. So if I've been successful 
creating other people's brands, it was almost kind of seamless to do it for myself. Although there were some learnings when I started this back in 2012, I really knew nothing about social media and social media wasn't, wasn't what it is now. So there were some, there were some learnings there, but otherwise, yeah, I think my, my past has definitely put me in a place to succeed today. Yeah. You know, Sasha, it's interesting because, you know, you reference your past and, uh, you know, on your Instagram, you know, you share a lot of great photos and videos of you doing, you know, these fantastic home workouts, you know, lifting weights and doing yoga. And, you know, I wanted to dig a little deeper into your, into some of your past, your life as a former athlete, an elite athlete. And so from what I understand, you played tennis, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people assume it was track and field or something like that or basketball, but yep, tennis was the sport. Um, I started at the age of five and I was introduced to the sport by my parents who are both avid players. I played it my entire life. I played at a very high level from the time I was in high school. So I was only in high school part-time. And um, by the time I turned 18, I got a full ride to Indiana State University and was there for two years before transferring over to Howard University in Washington, D.C. on a full ride there as well for tennis. No, that's amazing. So yeah, you got a full scholarship, you know, athletic scholarship, Indiana State University, then over to Howard University. And then like, how far were you able to take it? Um, like, how did you place, you know, the NCAAs and that type of thing and the HBCUs, like how, and, and also why did you stop playing? Like, you know, is, is it something you wanted to kind of, you know, like as far as the Canadian Open, US Open, Wimbledon, like how far, like, how did you do? How did you fare? And can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, of course. Um, so I did very well as a junior. At one point, I was ranked top 10 in the nation. I, to be honest, never really had any desires to turn the sport into a profession, Um, maybe because I come from immigrant parents, but education was always uh, paramount and always the number one priority. And I knew that eventually I wanted to be in business. So Tennis was actually just a tool to help get me there faster. And um, for lack of better words, for free, I think it was great to be able to obtain a free scholarship and not have to graduate with massive student debt. So what happened to me, I feel like because I started playing the sport at such an early age, like five is very young. And at the level that I played at, um, I didn't also feel like I had much of a childhood. It, it was kind of a job. So when I stopped playing, which was a bit premature, to be honest, because I was diagnosed with my kidney disease in 2000, which would have been my first transferred year at Howard. And it wasn't until shortly after that, I think towards the end of my sophomore year is when my doctors had advised me that it would be best to like pull out and no longer play for the rest of my time there. And I was lucky enough that the university honored my scholarship and gave me a medical scholarship so I can continue my education at Howard University for free. So that's kind of sad um, that my career was abruptly ended. However, the silver lining was that after so many years of being a student athlete, I was able to then just be a student for the first time ever. And to be able to just be a student at Howard University, the mecca of Black colleges and universities was amazing. 
Yeah. Can you can you even expand on that? Um, your you know Howard University experience because you know in Canada we don't have anything like that. You know this idea of historically black colleges and universities and um, and you know and when you talk about Tennessee being it's very grueling. There's a Great. One of the best autobiographies I read was uh, Andre Agassi's book. It's called Open. And, uh, a just, phenomenal yeah. book. Phenomenal book. That book is insane. Like it just talks about just it's just a grind, you know, from the time you're young straight through. Um, but yeah, HBCUs. Can we talk? Can you talk about your experience there? You know, for, you know, Canadian listeners that don't have any sense as to what it would be to go to an HBCU. In one word, overwhelming. Um, <laughs> so growing up in Toronto, which is obviously kind of a cultural melting pot, I lived in a white neighborhood. I played a very white sport. I went to a very white school. Then Indiana State is right dead center of middle America. So it's very white there as well. So going to Howard in D.C. was almost a bit of a shell shock for me. Um, It took me a couple months to kind of get used to it. And it, it sounds bad, but It was, when I say overwhelming, it was overwhelming in the sense of being around so many affluent Blacks. Mm -hmm. Blacks that have come from a long lineage of money. Blacks that come from a long lineage of education. Some of my fellow students, their grandparents and great-grandparents had attended Howard University, um, which gave me goosebumps. Um, Not to say that there was anything wrong with my upbringing, but my grandparents hadn't graduated high school. So um, it was a lot. And then just to be on campus around that many Black people, there were white students there, but they were the very much the minority, I would say less than 5%. And they were really um, in graduate schools, like the School of Medicine and School of Dentistry. Um, it was very empowering experience. And it taught me a lot about myself It taught me a lot about the culture. It gave me a very, very different perspective of um, our history. And it was kind of um, a little disheartening in the beginning to realize how far back I was in terms of Black history education. I had a lot to learn. I mean, stepping there, going to my first basketball game, when I heard the Black national anthem, I didn't even know one existed. And was mortified because I didn't know the words. I yeah. I, I struggled uh, to get in there. I had family members that were not really much an advocate of me going there. Um, just worrying about, you know, it kind of being a party school or Washington, D.C. being um, kind of a rough city. But I've been on this earth for 40 years now. And by far, I think it's one of the top three decisions I've ever made. I have a cousin who is 19 that's in her freshman year there, and she says it's the best decision she's ever made. Ah, okay. Awesome. This is great. This is great because I was just talking to a friend of mine yesterday. He's he he went to Howard, and I was talking to him about my son. You know that that you know he might be he might be ending up going there. We were just talking about all this, like just you you know you had mentioned uh, this idea. Even like uh, we were talking about the boule, you know, like this exclusive. Um, you know, super successful black, uh, kind of like a fraternity situation. And you have all these interesting things that we just don't have here in Canada. There's no such thing. Oh, there's layers and layers. Yeah. I didn't even get to talk about the fraternities and sororities, but yeah, Yeah. it's a very powerful experience for sure. So yeah, speaking of, I mean, empowerment and black empowerment and anti-racism, I mean, this year has been such a, 
uh, I guess, really overwhelming year in terms of people understanding the impact of anti-Black racism with the death of the murder, actually, of George Floyd and everything going on with that. I thought it was really great how that, you know, you expressed that you wanted to use your voice and, you know, take a new sense of responsibility to the community to empower black voices. And I just kind of wanted to know, has it changed the way you do your work? Has it influenced or introduced new projects and how have people responded? How have brands responded? Okay. This is the first time I've been asked this question since everything started in June and I get, I'm starting to get a bit emotional. Um, I felt that I didn't have a choice. I, mm-hmm. In this role as being a content creator or storyteller, I'm used to, yes, there are sponsored posts on my feed, yeah. but I'm used to, and I think why people enjoy following me is because I share everything that's going on in my life and around me and what's affecting me. Yeah. And that's how I keep things very real and organic. And at the height of that first week of that movement, um, my daughter and I were walking home from the coffee shop and I was called the N-word in front of my child. And I just came home enraged because it really has only happened to me one other time in my adult life. And then obviously the murder happening that week as well, emotions were riding high. And I just felt that... You know, we live in Canada and we're, we're a country of kindness and kind of where a lot of us are naive. Um, a lot of Canadians felt like the race issue wasn't an issue that we faced at home. Right. I have, you know, I've lived in the U.S. for six years and I do have a, a large um, U.S. following, but majority of my followers are Canadian. And I just felt that the topic was being ignored over and over and over again because Um, many didn't feel like it affected us in any way. And then that the timing of that story, what happened to us on that walk home with the George Floyd murder, I just felt like I needed to share and and make people aware here at home. And I just felt that it was also responsibility of anyone else that considered themselves to be influencers of some sort to speak about what's going on in the world. How has it changed the way I do business? 110%. I've always been very cognizant of the brands and agencies and companies that I align myself with, but um, being open on social media and, and speaking up and posting and sharing resources is one thing and it's great. It's an amazing starting point, but I always ask myself, what can I do more? What can I do above and beyond the square or Instagram stories? And that responsibility lies in me educating the brands that I work with to make sure that there's representation and there's diversity yeah. and inclusivity. It can't, I can't always be the um, sole token Black woman on a campaign. Right. Um, I wanted to also challenge the companies that I work with that have had long-term uh, relationships with because it's it, I see it more as a corporate social responsibility thing. What are they doing on the inside, even from as low as the the store level up to corporate? Who are the who are the decision makers? So lots of interesting conversations. Um, a lot of them, many of them, were uncomfortable, 
but needed to be had. And I feel very passionate about only aligning myself with people that are going in the same direction as me. Right. And I'm sure that, you know, a lot of your followers were inspired as well. Um, Yes, I think a lot were um, were shocked and surprised maybe about how vocal I was or about my own personal experiences. And I talked a little bit about, you know, being the double minority as being a black female and how much harder I had to work. I think that was very surprising for a lot of my followers. Um, And I think speaking up also encouraged and motivated many to do the same. Yeah, it's it's interesting too, Sasha. I mean, you've become, you know, you were already a role model, but I think uh, now, you know, a role model on steroids. I mean, the art, like you're, when we talk about this idea of an influencer, you know, uh, uh, you know, you're, what you're doing is you're influencing, you know, you, you know, your thousands and hundreds of thousands of followers, you know, on, on Instagram. And I, you know, I wanted to sort of talk to you a little bit about the, you know, the art of influencer culture, you know, content creators, like, because, you know, I know some influencers uh, or micro influencers and I, I, you know, they tell me that they, you know, they're generating quite a fair amount of revenue. They're doing very well for themselves, you know, but it's not, it's not something you can necessarily study or go to school to study to become an influencer. You know what I mean? Very Um, interesting. Yes, indeed. (laughs) You know what I mean, right? But I see a lot of young people and a lot of your followers and people in general that aspire to become an influencer. So like, like, what can you share with us? Like, what do you tell a young person who wants to become an influencer like you and do what you do? What do you tell them? This may shock you, but I tell them not to do it. (laughs) Um, There's so many levels to this question and layers. So the word influencer, I, I often find a bit problematic And I feel like those that use the word are probably people that are in the space and aren't really even influencing anything. Mm. I think influence is a byproduct of doing content creation or storytelling in a very good way. So, um, you know, I have that conversation quite a bit with people when they ask me like what my title is or what I call myself. Um, And I have various, but yeah, I would never normally say influencer is one of them because I just like to tell stories and I just like to share my life and I like to bring people along on the journey. And by doing that and being my true authentic self, it then does influence my followers. So I would say this, if somebody genuinely shows a passion and an interest in creating and telling stories and has a very creative eye and loves to take photos and is great with words, I would definitely encourage them to get into this space because, I mean, I'm not going to lie, it's very cool to be able to be your own boss and work with dream brands that you would love to work in-house for, but work for yourself, if that makes sense. Um, I would never tell somebody to get into this line of work if they're looking for a quick buck. Um, I don't think that that yields in longevity and it certainly doesn't yield in success. And I don't think, I think followers are a lot more intelligent now. Um, So nobody really wants to see a creator's account full of ads. So if, if you're looking for a bunch of free trips and a bunch of free product and want to be unwrapping gifts every day, and more into the frivolous aspect of the job, I would highly suggest that's not not for that person. Um, 
but it could be a very beautiful line of work if you're passionate about storytelling. And what I would, the advice I would probably give to somebody getting into it is to definitely find a niche um, because the market is getting quite saturated now. And choose to talk about things that you're passionate about because when you're passionate and really into something, that transcends in the content. And people can feel it. People can pick it up off of their phone screen when they're looking at your your posts. And Very just nice. be true. Be true to yourself. Because if you have to also keep up a facade, it's exhausting. And I think people can like see right through that. So the easiest thing for me to do is just, you know, unabashedly and unapologetically be myself. Yeah. I feel, And I feel like that's even changing. Like I feel like schools are going to start having courses and influencing Yes, I, I feel like that could be the direction because I know a lot of post-secondary um, schools have introduced social and digital marketing. So right. I think that's going to be like the next step. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I, I like how Sasha, you know, responded to, you know, it's it, like it's, it would sound so disingenuous and corny, you know, if somebody asks Sasha and say, hey, Sasha, like, what, you know, what, what do you do? And I'm like, I'm an influencer, you know? Like, <laughs> I mean, doesn't it sound so obnoxious? <laughs> <laughs> Only when you think about it like that, like I always just thought, okay, there's just so many people that are, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't really problematize or think about it like that, but it is a little corny. But, and then when you think about it, <laughs> have, how many times have you been influenced by said influencer? Right. I feel like a lot of the time we're influenced and we don't even know it. So I guess that goes back to being authentic. But I think that's because the person's doing their job well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, even well, even on your page, I mean, like, I got to be honest, because um, like, like I was saying, you know, a couple of years ago, we tried to get you involved in this symposium. And like, I'd look at your feed and see some cool stuff, you know, like Nike, whatever, Joe Fresh, like you're doing, you know, so it, it so it's working, whatever you're doing, it's working. Cause you know, like I'm into my sneaker culture and athletic apparel and I'm like, yeah, this works. And my wife, you know, we look at your page, we're like, yo, like totally we're into this stuff, you know? So, but you know what I mean? It's working, <laughs> whatever it is you're doing, it's certainly working, you know, like, but I'm not going to, yeah, but the influence, that's a great point. Like we, 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 maybe we call, you know, it's like, yeah, digital storyteller, content creator, but yeah, that, that's a, that's a really strong point. Sasha, thank you so much for joining us and sharing such amazing information. Well, thank you guys for having me. It's been a blast. Okay, so our episode would not be complete if we didn't spill a little tea. Right, Mel? Yeah, absolutely. And there is a lot to spill tea about this week. Oh, geez. There's like a gallon. There's like, you know, <laughs> leaders upon leaders of, yeah, <laughs> right? OD on uh, black tea. So, you know, this week, I mean, I want to talk about the fact that, you know, we all know that black is beautiful. I mean, that's a fact. Um, but but it's but it seems to me that some non-black people might be taking that feeling a little bit too far. I mean, say the least. you know, so there's, so, I mean, Mel, so you and I talked about this. There's so many stories in the news about people wanting to dress like us, look like us, talk like us, wear our hairstyles, perform our music, right? Now, you know, I get it. I get why people are obsessed and fixated, you know, on, on, on blackness, uh, because I like to say that, you know, we generally dictate what looks good, what sounds right. You know, that's not a new idea. Um, right. the, when I was in university, I read this uh, essay. Um, it was by this writer, Norman Mailer, and he wrote this essay in, in, is in 1957, and it's called The White Negro. And in this essay, he talks about how white youth, you know, typically feed off of the innovations and inventions of black people to stay relevant and to feel alive. 
And mm-hmm. but so now we fast forward to 2020. That was written in 1957, and. I don't know what to make of, you know, this story. I, you know, we just heard about this George Washington University professor, Jessica Krug, and she basically admitted that she's been pretending to be black her whole life. Like it's a white Jewish woman. Yeah. And she did this mostly to advance her career. You know, it's a white Jewish woman from the, from the U.S. And she pretended to be black her whole life to advance her career as a professor. What, what am I to make of that, Mel? And she, yeah, she says that she's from Kansas. I mean, the way that she framed it is different than Rachel Dolezal in the fact, because remember how Rachel kind of like doubled down on, you know, still identifying as black, still having a black experience. Like she really, I think, still clings to that. Um, this Jessica Krug one was basically like, yes, you can cancel me. Yes, this was wrong. And she didn't necessarily apologize, but she tried to explain it away. But it's just, yeah, like you said, using her supposed blackness to navigate these black spaces but that's the problem you know bolstering her voice not being able to do this work and work on behalf of black communities without taking the identity and there's it's just I mean I feel like there's going to be more people like this I feel like she's not the only one Rachel Dolezal is not the only one and it's just this this constant like cultural theft continues to happen yeah. So are you suggesting maybe, Mel, that, yeah, there are just all of these Rachel Dolezal, Rachel Dolezal-esque figures in our midst that are just going to sort of pop up out of the woodworks? <laughs> I think so. And I mean, even the way that this story, I mean, it, it um, I guess it's been, I mean, 24 hours. I think the university, they're letting her go. I think that's the last piece of news that I saw about it, but it's gone completely viral. And like, is that what we should be doing? Making this woman more famous? Is she going to get a book deal? I think she will. I mean, Rachel, I mean, Rachel Dolezal, she was able to cash in this cultural theft, as you called it into, you know, there's a Netflix documentary, which I've yet to watch, you know? And, uh, oh yeah, it's entertaining, but yeah, I watched it. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I <laughs> that's right. That's a you know, that's a what do you say? You know, they say your dirty little secret. Yeah, I watched it. You know, it's just like yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it's just she's being rewarded. Yeah, she's gonna be rewarded for this, and it's just it's so sad to me. And like, it, you can I I wonder if people would be able to trace like how many, particularly black women that do this work that haven't have lost out on opportunities, have lost out on publishing opportunities. Um, you know, teaching opportunities because of this woman. Yeah. Like, how can she atone for that? Yeah, no, she she can't. She can't. She can't repair that. You know, there's no kind of uh, sort of reparation style thing she can do. You know, it's 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 been done. It's it's uh, it, it, it's it's kind of like even you know, if we, how about another case like you know with Adele? Okay, you know, hugely popular oh, God. pop singer, and you know Adele. You know, so she also this week, I mean, there are a bunch of non-black people, <laughs> white people that have been running around mask, you know, parading, uh, you know, in right. black cultural attire or language or wanting to pretending to be us or whatever. But Adele, she faced accusations of cultural appropriation, uh, you know, just recently and, and large numbers of her black uh, and racialized fans you know, started unfollowing her in droves, right? Because she, you know, we saw that she shared on the Instagram. The Bantu knots, yeah. Yeah, yeah, she showed this, you know, she's <laughs> wearing this traditional African hairstyle, you know, because she was supposed to be at Notting Hill Carnival in, in the UK. And the the funny thing is, you know, so a lot, a lot of black women in particular are kind of saying like, hey man, like when we wear this hairstyle, 
you know, people right. sort of look at it. They say it's, hey, it's not professional looking. You look hood. You look like you're from the ghetto. Like, right. but she's wearing it and being celebrated. So what, like, what about that? I don't know. Is there a double, double standard there? A harsh double standard? Cruel no, double standard? I mean, I feel like, well, with the Adele, I feel like that's, it's gotta be, at this point, it has to be a publicity stunt. Mm-hmm. Like these people have to be trolling us because it's like, you know, that people are going to be upset about it. And what I don't like is the debate. It's always like, is this cultural? Yes, it is cultural <laughs> appropriation. You know, if we can't wear our hair like this and, and you know, wear it to work, wear it to like our hairstyles are still being demonized. Their real harm is caused by the consequences of us wearing our hair in its natural form. And she's putting on a costume. Yeah, that's what she it, literally had on a costume and her hair. Like, do you know what I mean? It's just yeah, like, yeah, that's what that's what it feels it's like. It's a caricature. It, it feels like this. You nailed it. It feels like a caricature. Now, now here's the thing when you, you know, you mentioned that you talked about something very interesting about how, you know, when black women and, you know, are demonized, you know, wearing these hairstyles at work. And, you know, we've had public broadcasters saying, hey, if I wear my hair and it's a natural or braided hairstyle, yeah, um, it's not looked on favorably in, in the in corporate Canada, you know, as a broadcaster. Right. And, and here, here's a funny thing I found, Mel. Um, this uh, MBA student uh, did some research in this area, you know, around, you know, professional and unprofessional hairstyles. And it's interesting, mm-hmm. this MBA student found that if you Google, if you do a Google image search for, you know, if you plug in your search engine unprofessional hairstyles, what mm-hmm. pops up is pictures, mostly pictures of black women wearing their natural hair or wearing natural braids or twists. When you Google unprofessional hairstyles for the workplace, all right? And then if you now look up, this is what she did research around. She, and then if you stick in your search engine professional hairstyles, what comes back are pictures of white women, you know, or, women. Yeah, or black women with chemically straightened hair. Like, yeah, that's what came back. And it's just, it's, and to me, it's just like, you know, if, especially around all these cultural things, like cultural appreciation is not appropriation. Like it's seeking to understand. And if you actually understood the culture and understood the oppression behind us just being ourselves, you wouldn't wear it as a costume. Yeah. Yeah. It wouldn't be like some, <laughs> no, really, like some caricature-ish, like blackface. It, it, some, in some ways it feels like, like, yeah. like when you see like Chet Hanks, you know, Tom Hanks' son. Oh my God. Speaking yeah. Jamaican nation language or mess. Patois like 24-7. Like what am I to make of that? You know, like I, I said. Know. Like I said yeah. And he's, uh, didn't he, ho- I think he hollered at Adele this week as well, because I think he's trying to become a part of this story. Adele, you know I say me a prayer from long time, but after me see a picture of Adele, mm, it's sweet me. When I tell no lie, my girl, ear style fit you. Big up yourself. Nobody was talking about Chad Hanks until he pretended to be black. This is a real problem. Yes, exactly. That that's yeah, and that's the issue, right? What are his talents, you know, besides being Tom Hanks' son? Like, what what has he really contributed to, uh, you know, civilization, to arts, to culture, to you know, as far as acting? Like, what has he really contributed outside of doing these corny, fake, half pseudo patois Jamaican nation language things? Like, what has he contributed? <laughs> Nothing, you know. So, and here's the question, you know, that maybe you know our listeners listenership can ponder. Uh, you know, it's kind of. There's this author, you know, he wrote this book called Everything But the Burden. And, you know, do people, you know, they want to dress like us, talk like us, walk like us. They want their to yeah. have their hair look like yours, Mel. But do they really want to be us? Like, could they walk a day in our no. shoes? You know, right? Do they do they want to be so heavily scrutinized when they go shopping? Do they want security guards following them around when they're shopping retail? Do they want cops putting their knees in our back? Like, you know what I mean, do they want the full black yeah. experience? Or is, is it just like some like, a, you know, or Jamaicans would say poppy show, caricature, minstrel show. Yeah. Like, what's going on? You know? 
Um, and that's the thing. It, it really causes real harm because we're dealing with real things. And then we have to deal with people imitating us. So I think we're going to get it and profiting pro- like truly profiting off of our likeness off of like, I mean, I think the, the Jessica Krug situation is particularly sad because of the opportunities that she's gotten and the spaces that she's had within activism. It's just, you can't, it's, I, I don't know how people would are even going to be able to quantify how many lost opportunities that she took from people That's right. just because she felt like pretending to be black. So we want to thank you, the listeners, for tuning in to another fantastic, fantabulous episode of Black Tea. And, you know, I'd like to thank our guest, Sasha Exeter. She killed it. And um, of course, we have to, this episode would not be complete and turn out the way it did, if not for the work of our super producer, Ryan Clark. And of course, I have to big up, large up my lovely and talented co-host, Ms. Melena Williams. And we can be, if you want to get us on socials, you can get Melena Williams on Twitter at Melena Williams. And I can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Dalton Higgins 5. Thanks for listening.